Let's go ahead and pull out our notes So we have been going through as a church our mission, vision, and core values, and this is the last session of kind of that, that um, this series that we wanted to cover as a church family, beginning of the year. And so I'm going to wrap it up here with our core value of having a biblical foundation. My goal to this morning, what I really feel like the Lord laid on my heart, is not just to present to you guys this core value, although I am doing that. I'm saying, hey, as Restoration Fellowship, one of our core values is having a biblical foundation. That's very true, and that's the purpose, I guess, for this message. But as I've just kind of you know, reviewed this this morning, this is something I've talked on many times, as I reviewed it, I really felt like God wanted to give confidence this morning that there's clarity in the Word for you. All right? So there, there is a solid place of truth for you, and it's available by His Spirit to those that are hungry and humble and those that want it. So we're going to jump right in here. Roman numeral one, seemingly obvious. Isn't it obvious that every church as a core value would want a biblical foundation for all that they do? Duh. Core value, duh. So why do we even got to say something? Well, here's why. Look at uh, uh, letter A here. You might find it surprising the church would even need to have a statement like this. Hey, we, we try to have a biblical foundation in everything we do. For many, this seems like an obvious assumption of church rather than something that needs to be a core value. But the truth is, we are living in a post-Bible culture right now. Post-Bible culture. Even within the church, there are many streams and trends that in the name of God actually walk away from the authority of Scripture. Now look at this Barna research. This came out, I want to say, two years ago. So 2022-ish. Yeah. <clears throat> the percentage of Americans who believe the Bible is the inspired true word of God is down more than 21 percentage points to 26% since 2000. So over the last 20 years, we've watched people say... I believe that the Bible is true. It's down in America to 26%. That was two years ago. So a quarter of the people in the room, potentially today, could say, I believe the Bible is true. And the rest of you would say, ah, maybe. I mean, that's, that's the American research. I'm not saying that's true this morning. I hope it's not. But that's where we're at as a culture. The parallel is similarly um, prescriptious that 50% decrease in a biblical worldview in America over the same time period. Now, this one is alarming. Worldview. How I take in 
the value, you know, how I take in the values of my life, what I deem to be true or false, what is a value to me as a person right now on the planet, that's my worldview. How do I take in information and process information and how do I live? Six percent have a biblical worldview of Americans. Now, gang, whether, I don't know if, I look at this statistic and I go, I don't know if that's true, but did you know that even recent polls say that 80% of Americans claim they're Christians? 80%. Say, I, I'm a Christian, and that Christianity is based on the Bible. So 80% are saying, I'm a Christian. Now, that belief system is based on the Bible, but only 6% say, with the Bible, I'm going to have a worldview from the Bible. All right? So where does it, so where's worldview come from currently? Well, here we go, letter B. We are living in unprecedented times concerning the cultural view of the Bible, especially in the church itself. Now, this isn't, there's always, obviously the atheist doesn't buy into the Bible. But what we're living in is a time where Christians look at the Bible and say, I'm no longer looking to this as my foundation for my worldview and my truth. What do they look to? Here we go, another Barna Research statistic. Currently half the population in America who identify as Christian believe that the source of guidance for right and wrong comes from common sense or thought, not from the Word of God. And let me summarize this to today's language, how I feel. How do I feel about that? That's how I'm going to decide whether I'm going to stand for something, deny something, believe in something, fight for something, uphold something. How do I feel about it? And maybe 10 years from now it'll be, what's my vibes on that? Right? That's getting so popular. What's the kind of the, what's the emotions that I feel when I think about something? So, what's the problem with this? Well, we just have then an ocean of confusion about what truth is. How do you feel that day? How many of you guys know that, I mean, I have good days and bad days. Do you guys have good days and bad days? There are certain days that I'm going to feel grumpy about everything. <laughs> right? Now, how do we feel about it? How do other people feel about it? Let's, let's, you know, read how people feel about a certain subject of truth or value. So that's why we need to address this as a church family. This is why we have to make a big deal out of this actually being a core value because here at Restoration Fellowship, we don't base our truth on how we feel. We base it on what the Word says. And we actually try as best we can to have the truth of the Bible govern the way that we do church, the values that we uphold, the things that we do, and we'll get into that in a minute. But let's just look at this, you know, just common um, stance that we're going to take as a church family, well, as a leadership team, and as a church family, we are saying, hey, embrace this. That the Bible is authoritative. 
that all the words of the Bible are God's words in such a way as to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God Himself. That's what that means. We say, we believe the Bible's authoritative. Oh, okay, great. Well, here's what we actually mean. Is that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God Himself. And there are three pillars of belief concerning the Bible that cause us to say this is authoritative. So there's three pillars of saying, yeah, we believe that this is the Word of God. Number one, we believe that it's inspired. We believe that the Scriptures are authored and guided by God, or as the Scripture puts it, God breathed. Okay, let's look at a couple of passages on this. Acts 1.16. Acts 1.16, Peter's making a case for something that just happened that was in the Scriptures, and he says this, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David. So who said it? David said it, right? By the mouth of David. But Peter says, the Holy Spirit breathed it through him. So the Holy Spirit said it. God said it. Through David's mouth is the idea. That's what we mean by God breathed or, or inspired. Let's look at 2 Peter. He makes it super clear for us. Peter does. And he says, let's start in uh, verse 19. So 2 Peter chapter 1, 19 through 21 is where we're at here. Let's look at this. I'm going to start in verse 19. And so we have the word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, I think this is the most terrible, if I could write to all the Bible translations to just say, terrible. Verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, the correct word actually is origin. And that's so very different than interpretation, isn't it? That no prophecy of Scripture is of a private origin, like somebody came, this originated from various places. It originated from God, all of it. That's what what he's saying. So we believe that what we're reading is God-breathed. Letter B, we believe that it's infallible. What this means is that we believe that the Bible is not able to lead us astray in matters of faith, truth, or practice. It serves as a completely trustworthy guide to know, understand, and obey God. Completely trustworthy. It's not going to lead you off into the la-la land, Right? Let's look at Psalm 12, verse 6. I love this psalm, specifically about the Scriptures. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, filtered seven times. How many of you guys have ever encountered something in life that's been true for you and go, the Bible says that? You know, and that's something. The Bible says this, you know, about this particular thing that I've found to be so true. 
It's been proven over and over and over all throughout human history that the Bible does not lead people astray in faith and practice um, and in truth. John 17, Jesus praying to the Father, and he thanks the Father that all of these, the church that he's praying for, which is actually in John 17, is all believers for all time, not just his disciples then, but all that would come to know him through the testimony. He goes, I want you to sanctify them in your truth. In other words, that you would purify them in your truth. Because why? Because your word is true. It's infallible. And see, it's inerrant. We believe that the Bible in its original form does not affirm anything contrary to fact. That's what that means. This includes historical, scientific, and geographical data. Okay? Let's look at Proverbs 30, 5 and 6. Every word of God is pure. He's like a shield to those who take refuge in him. But do not add to his words or he'll rebuke you and you will be proved a liar. I love that. It's like, here's, it, this is, this is um, the inerrancy of the word. And when humans start to add to it, that's when it gets errant. That's when problems arise. All right, let's go ahead and flip the page. And I want to say this. <laughs> I had a person come to me one time and say, now the Bible is error because it says that the sun sets. But the sun doesn't set. See, the earth spins around and the sun sits still. The sun doesn't actually set. So the Bible's a liar. And I was just like, ah, come on, dude. Like, let's not get carried away, right? It, it, the sun sets. This is a something we all say. We understand there's a sunset and a sunrise. You know, no one's going to look on their weather app. Because if you guys pull it up right now, it's going to say sunrise and sunset and go, Liar! The sun doesn't set, the earth spins. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. So, <laughs> I had to just side note. All right, number two on the next page here. Through the lens of the authority of Scripture, we also hold the conviction of the clarity of Scripture. So, so, not, so we just set this up as the Bible is authoritative, but here's what we also uphold. It's clear, and it can be understood by all. The necessity of Scripture, it is necessary for knowing God, salvation, and truth, and the sufficiency of Scripture, that it contains all we need for life, truth, and godliness, that as we uphold these things, we believe that the Bible is clear, it's sufficient, and it's necessary for everybody. 2 Timothy says it so well, 2 Timothy 16 17, right there in your notes, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man, and the word there is servant, meaning man or woman, just anybody that serves the Lord, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you actually take this for what it says, that within the Scriptures you are you have everything you need to be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
then what you can come to the conclusion of is that every Bible teacher, everything that you hear is only just going to come alongside of what's already there. You, do, you have everything you need in the Scripture for life and godliness. You don't need anything else. B, doctrinal stances. So I like to break this down because it's helpful for people. So as we consider Restoration Fellowship, we have a biblical foundation, and we, in our own personal lives, we're reading the Word, and we have our worldview, our values, our convictions about what the Word says. And I want to be clear, it's very important, I think, to look at the various levels of conviction that we have over various doctrines and, and that we hold them in the proper place. So there's three basic kind of um, stances that we're going to take on what the Bible says. Okay? Number one, there's essential doctrines. Okay, so the Bible says things that are absolutely essential to faith. And if you don't believe them, gang, you're probably not a Christian. That's how essential they are. Okay, these primary important doctrines that are in the Word are essential for fellowship and the community of saving faith. Essential doctrines are so critical to believe that if an individual does not believe in them, we would actually view them as unbelievers. Okay? Example, saved by grace alone through faith alone. This is an essential doctrine of Christianity. This is an essential thing in the Word of God. And if you don't believe this... We're actually going, actually, I don't think you're saved. If you're still working and sacrificing animals for salvation, we're not on the same page. Right? That's an essential doctrine of Christianity, by grace through faith alone. Number two, core convictions. And there's only a few of them. There's only really a few essential doctrines that we're going to hold with every single other believer in the planet. Number two, core convictions. These are doctrines that are held by our leadership team, and probably by you. You're going to have some doctrines that are core convictions, and by doctrines, I mean truths. We are confident that the Bible is very clear on these subjects. Every ministry has a set of core convictions that if they compromise on them, they are compromising altogether. Okay, all of you guys have these. I guarantee it, and we have them as a church as well. We're not open to changing our core convictions, but we still respect and honor those who hold different convictions. We must uphold love and support and the brotherhood of the saints in Christ and differences of core convictions. However, we understand it's very difficult to do ministry together with individuals who hold different core convictions. For this reason, we encourage individuals to find a church family that best lines up with their core convictions so they can flourish in ministry. For example, this one hits home for us the core conviction that we have as a church family about spiritual gifts. We believe the spiritual gifts are for today. We're going to encourage them. We're going to uphold them. We're going to train in them. We're going to pray over you. You receive more of them. Now, there are churches who love Jesus who would say, we don't believe the spiritual gifts exist today. All right? We are not looking at those individuals as unsaved. We are not looking at those individuals as not part of the church. But we are looking at those individuals and saying, buddy, you're going to struggle here. (laughs) 
You're going to have a hard time in this church family if you hold that core conviction, and you're not going to be able to flourish here. You're going to have struggle in ministry with us, and so you probably need to find a group that believes that is long with you because you're just going to be struggling and struggling and struggling every single Sunday when someone shares a word or when we pray for the sick or whatever it might be, right? So that's an example. When we see those things, we look at someone who holds different. We say we love them. They're a brother and sister in Christ. We bless them. They're not anti-God. They're not, they love Jesus. They hold a very different core conviction. And some people are kind of in the middle of the road. Yeah, spiritual gifts are cool, but I'm not going to fire up about them. And some are like adamantly opposed. Right? So there's various levels of conviction on these things. But for here, this is a core conviction for us. Does that make sense? All right, and then there's personal opinions. And I just want to say this about personal opinions. We, we got to be careful because the, the truth is a lot of our personal convictions we hold as core convictions. A personal opinion about something. We get so fired up about it, it's almost like you're not even, we're not even <laughs> loving the same Jesus here. Some teachings or themes we believe are biblical but they are opinions, meaning we derive them as an implication from Scripture. We believe they're informed, but they're of a whole lesser level of weightiness. For example, the timing of the rapture. That is such a, not a level of weightiness that I'm going to argue with you over. We can go have a coffee and we can talk about it. And we're also not going to make this a core conviction of our church family. That everybody has to believe the timing of the rapture in order to do ministry with us here. Okay, that, that's, it's a personal opinion that we, we feel strongly on in our own personal opinion, but it's not a widely held core conviction. Let's go ahead and flip the page. But I, I want to encourage you to, to kind of take, you know, an inventory of your core convictions the Lord has given you through the Word. You're super, you know, passionate about certain aspects of truth in the Word, and that's great. But where you get wrong is we expect everybody else to have that same core conviction, right? And you kind of remove them from your circle. All right, Scripture over tradition and culture. All right, this is a big one for us, gang. So I want you to pay attention to here, and I underlined it. This is a huge one for us. So we're at Restoration Fellowship. We're picking Scripture over tradition and culture. The instructions of church function and methodology and intentionality found in Scripture serve as the basis for why we do what we do when we gather corporately. Many times our methodology seems to go against the grain of mainstream church expressions and find their methodology more rooted in tradition. For example, we had a couple in here the other day. I love them. They love the Lord. They're friends of mine, but they've not, they're from another state, and they were visiting. And they walked in, and they said, hey, it's just super unclear who the pastor is. Who's the pastor? Right? And I said, we don't have a pastor. We hold a core conviction that that's not necessarily the biblical way that church is to function. And they looked at me with this, so, what? We've never been to a church that doesn't have a pastor. And I would just say, I just challenged them and I said, if you can find it in the Word, 
to the clarity that it is that every church needs to have a pastor, you know, we'd be for it. But as we search it out, what we see is a team of elders lead. That's what we see. We're in no way trying to be elite or saying we're right and others are wrong. We're actually not even saying that. Like, you're wrong if you have a lead pastor. We don't say that. But we do say for us, we don't see that in Scripture. And so in Restoration Fellowship, we're not having a lead pastor. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Dennis. Dennis is for it. That's good. We're simply doing what we believe is right based on the Scripture forming the convictions of this leadership team. Here's some other examples. So we have a shared leadership of elders. We place equal importance on small groups and as Sunday mornings. So in Scripture, we look at Scripture and we see that all gatherings are holy. All gatherings are good. And, and in Acts, we just looked at that they gathered in the temple and in homes. And it was used in the same sentences. Like, both of these are equally important. So we're going to hold, if you don't know this, you probably know this, we're going to hold a strong, like, hey, you need to be in a life group. Well, do I have to be in a life group? No, but you need to be in a life group. Yeah, but do I have to? No, but you need to be in a life group. Like, we're going to hold it that, you know what I mean? It's important for us. Eagerly desiring and prioritizing spiritual gifts. Our non-denominational alliance. We, we don't see denominations in Scripture, so we're non-denominational. We don't require membership. We, we don't see that one. It's just, we don't see it, so we don't do it. Um, we don't see church votes taking place in the Scripture. I'm not saying voting is wrong. We're just saying we don't see it, so we don't, we don't do it. We don't uphold it. We don't require tithing. We don't require formal theological training for leadership or messaging. We don't require suits and ties. There's nothing wrong with this, but we're just saying we don't see this in Scripture. Okay, so number three now. This is the one I really wanted to, to just kind of, I'm glad I got a few minutes left here to really lay this one out. This one is what was really on my heart here, the question of clarity. It is my belief that the lack of conviction concerning the authority of Scripture in church stems from a growing stance that says we can't really know for sure the correct the correct interpretation of Scripture. You guys have ever heard that? How many of you guys have ever felt that? We can't know for sure what the correct interpretation of this passage is. Why? Because most people look at the vast differences of interpretation and fissures within the church concerning doctrine and decide that their quest for personal competence in truth is unobtainable. It goes something like this. Well, I'm reading this passage, and it seems to say this. This is what I think it says. But I, I went on the internet, and there's all sorts of opinions out there. And some of these guys are, they pastor churches of 10,000. They've been to 18 years of theological training. And they're saying opposite of what I'm, how I'm interpreting. So this must just be unobtainable. Like, if the smart guys are arguing then there's no way I'm going to get it right. Have you guys ever felt that? Come on, be honest now. <clears throat> and this has led to two major errors in establishing personal conviction. That is an absolute error for you to believe that. 
I just want to be clear. It's an absolute error. It is a lie that because people argue that there's no clarity. I think this comes from two places. Number one, there's an over-reliance on Bible teachers. I just want you to know that only the spiritual gift of teaching is infallible. Did you hear me? If someone prophesies, if someone has a spiritual, what are we supposed to do with that prophecy? What are we supposed to do with it? Test it, right? It's a spiritual gift given by God. It's coming through the frame of man by the Spirit, and we're in an age of faith, and so that prophet is doing the best they can to kind of say, this is what I think the Lord is saying, but gang, test this. But when the teacher gets up, did you know there's a spiritual gift called teacher? Spiritual gift, gang, given to men who don't merit it, men and women, who don't merit that gift. It's not from intellect. They went to 20 years of Bible training, so now they have the spiritual gift. No. Right? Spiritual gift of teacher is not infallible, gang. It's a spiritual gift that should be what? Tested. Not bought wholesale. Well, you know... Clint, every time he gets up, that word seems to be from the Lord. Okay, so you stop testing it because he's been pretty accurate? Never, right? You never stop testing it. Well, Justin's been right on so many things, so I'm just going to buy it. Oh, don't do that, ever. Ever, ever, ever. Or, you know, this guy's got a huge following. He sold a million books, so it must be right. It must be right. Let me just remind you that we live in a world that we gauge right and wrong on how we feel. And I think we're actually entering a time where they feel like they really like what the guy is saying, so they buy it. I don't know, I'll throw that out there. These guys are really smart. Intellect has nothing to do with the, with the correct interpretation of Scripture. Nothing. So that's an error, to this over-reliance on Bible teachers or over-reliance on Bible scholars or over-reliance on commentaries. Test everything. What's in the Scripture is meant to encourage, so teachers come along and they strengthen what's already there. Teachers don't establish strength. God does that through the Spirit in you when you read the Word. Teachers come along and encourage it, just like prophets come along and encourage, right? They don't hear the Lord for you. You hear the Lord and they encourage you. That's how it works. Over-reliance on experience. There's also an absolute sense within the church that truth is relative based on our experience, which stems from our standards being our own rather than the plain reading of Scripture. All right, let's go ahead and flip the page. So here's what the Bible says, letter one here, or number one here. The Bible says this, that the understanding of the Bible has very little to do with the words themselves and their interpretation and everything to do with the posture of our hearts as we read in humility, hunger, and steadfastness. 
Did you catch what I just said there? All right? So the Bible has very little to do understanding the Bible, getting, having, like, let's make sure we're solid on what this means. It has very little to do with the words themselves or their interpretations. I love how Paul says, you're wrangling over words. Right? And more to do, everything to do. Not quite everything. You've got to have the right, interpret, the right translations and all that stuff. But I'm saying the actual clarity and the conviction of Scripture is given by the Spirit. When we have hearts that are humble, hungry, and steadfast in the Lord. That's where conviction comes from. That's where truth comes from. The inspired writers of Scripture not only expected their leaders to be well-versed in Scriptures. Here we go. Now, you've got to think about this. The inspired writers, you're reading through the epistles, and they're giving directions, and they're saying, hey, the Scriptures say this, gang. Right? What's the implication? You should know this. You should know what the Scriptures say. And they do this over and over and over. To who? To the erudite scholars? No, they do it to who? Everybody. Everybody. They do it to everybody. The, the educated, the non-educated, every class. They're addressing the church in Rome and saying, hey, the Scriptures say this. You should understand it. They gave no indication that the uneducated congregation of believers to which they were writing would have any limitation in comprehending or interpreting the truths they were writing about. Why? Why could they have such confidence? Here's why. Because none of the writers, and I got this in bold for you in case you miss it, it's in the notes. Because none of the writers of Scripture placed their confidence in human intellect but rather on the inspiration and work of the Holy Spirit cultivated in the lives of believers through prayer and obedience. Mic drop. They, what they banked on is that truth in the Word, conviction of the Word, came by the Holy Spirit to everybody and was for everybody for clarity. Look at this quote from Stephen Venable. When we inject the notion that the Scripture is too difficult to be understood, or even the highly educated disagree on the interpretation, we are placing our confidence on the native intellect of man, not on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We're smarter. We're just smarter than God. That's what it really comes off as. Who's the smartest one in the room? That's the right one. Not once in the Gospels do we ever hear Jesus saying anything like this on anything they questioned him about. And how many things did they question him about? Everything. He never said this. Ah, I see how your problem arose. The Bible's just super fuzzy on that. I see why you're off. The Bible's just not clear. I'm so sorry. He didn't ever say that. Instead, whether he's speaking to scholars... Or the Pharisees, the Sadducees, whether he's speaking to them or to the simple, if you want to use that kind of language, the uneducated, the, you know, the fishermen that he spoke to, the untrained. He always confronts those 
who misunderstand or fail to accept what's written in the, in the Word like this. Haven't you read? Don't you know what the Scriptures say on this? Every time. It's almost like everything you need for life and godliness is actually in the Word, and you can understand it. Have you not read? You're wrong because you don't know the Scriptures nor the power of God to help you understand the Scriptures. I'm going to have Matt come up. And just because I love it and I have the mic, I'm going to have Tony come up because I love that violin. <laughs> it's, it's anointed. How many of you guys think the violin is just more anointed than drums? I don't know. Don't just, no, I don't. Okay. That's my personal opinion, conviction. All right, here we go. Paul, as he wrote to the churches scattered throughout Asia Minor, not only expected, and underline this, it's in your notes if you want to, but just let it sink in. He expected Gentile believers. Let that that get a hold of you for a second. The scriptures were in a Hebrew Jewish context. Right? They didn't have the New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament. They had the Septuagint. So they had the Greek translation of the Hebrew, Old Testament. This is what they had. And when he was calling them to know the scriptures, you got to imagine it. These are Gentile groups, especially in Rome. That church was mostly Gentile when he wrote to them. And he's like, gang, the scriptures say this. The scriptures say that. Don't you understand that these scriptures are for you? I want to look at a few examples. Not only expected the Gentile believers to be well-versed and knowledgeable in the scriptures, but gave no indication that the church in the city would have any limits in comprehending them. He didn't say you need to go to Hebrew class. Let's look at a few things that he said. Romans chapter 4. He goes on this big thing. If you're familiar with Romans chapter 4, it's the story of Abraham and how he could not on his own bring forth a son because he was old and Sarah was old. And they had to believe that the Lord would do it miraculously, give them the promise. And then he relates it to the cross and saving salvation of forgiveness by sins through faith. But then he says this, Romans chapter 4, Verse 24, 25, towards the end of it. Verse 23. Not only for his sake was this written in the scriptures, that it was credit to him for righteousness to have faith, but who? But for our sakes. So you were supposed to, as a Gentile, read this story in the scriptures, ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand, and the Holy Spirit was going to reveal to everybody that this story was about faith, And the Lord fulfilling his promise through faith. The scriptures were written for our sakes as well. Verse 15. In Romans 15 he says this. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Again, he's looking at a Gentile congregation, mostly uneducated, don't anything about Hebrew, right? And he's saying, this is so 
clear for you guys that you can have hope like an anchor. 1 Corinthians. Chapter 10, verse 11. Now these things happened to them. Again, this is this history of Israel. He's writing to the church in Corinth here, which is part, mostly Greek, partly Jewish. He sees these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. I want to leave you with this, and Daniel, you can come on up. We're going to go into a ministry time. Luke 24, 45 says this. That he, from his, he, he, uh, he had rose from the grave and he's coming into their midst and he's talking about the scriptures to them and what? They're not getting it, right? Not, what? We're still not there even though you're in our midst. So, it says, and I, I just picture him laying his hands on him. I don't know what he did or if he just went like this. I don't know. I just picture that. And he opened up the scriptures to them and they all understood it. Because they all went to Bible school for four years. I'm not against Bible school, by the way. I am against Bible school if it's saying how smart you are. If you go to a Bible school and they say, you need to pray that the Holy Spirit reveals the word to you. That, that's a great Bible school to go to. Here's what I'm praying. Gang, I believe that we live in a day and age where there is confusion, there, there, a, a desire for clarity, there's all these arguings, and we have kind of almost gone, you just can't know. And I'm just saying, no, no, no. There is a confidence that the Lord wants to give us, especially in this age of confusion, gang. And it comes from the Lord opening up the scriptures to us as we ask him to do it.